Let us help you reach your peak in retirement. It's time for Retirement Elevated with Sean Lee. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Retirement Elevated podcast with Sean Lee. I'm Sean Lee, and once again, we have Trent College CFP on the podcast. Trent, how's sunny St. George, my friend? It's great today. You know, yesterday we had a lot of snow, more snow than you guys did up in Salt Lake City. So good today, though. Beautiful weather. It's it's crazy how the weather's been the last two weeks. As you know, I, I was down there and we got snowed out from baseball, which that, I think that tournament we go to is cursed. It's been rained out, snowed out two years in a row, <laughs> which shouldn't happen in St. George. But that's a reason why you go play baseball in the South in, <laughs> in March, because it's not supposed to snow. But hey, it, it is what it is, right? Yeah. But, we're just excited to, excited to be here. Hey, uh, for those that are listening, uh, you can download the, the podcast on Stitcher, iTunes, you know, Google Podcasts. There's a whole bunch of different places. Share it with your friends. Uh, because today we have a, a topic that, that we talk a lot of, about a lot in our practice, right, Chen? So we, we talk a lot about asset allocation. I think there's this, this common misconception when it comes to asset allocation that people think that, oh, that's diversification. I'm, I've got money in all these different funds or all these different places and I'm diversified and I've got strong asset allocation. When the reality of it is asset allocation is one of the more important pieces of, of tailoring a portfolio and a plan to an individual and making sure that it's done, that it's done properly. So one of the notes that you had today, one of the things that you wanted to talk about uh, was, you know, begin with the end in mind. So what, what did you mean by that when we, were, when we were chatting earlier? I think that that's a good starting point to, to talk about. Yeah. So uh, a couple of things. Yeah. And begin with the end in mind is, is what I wanted to start with. But to take it even um, one step beyond that, you know, what you said oftentimes is what, what we do, right, is we focus on comprehensive planning. Oftentimes right. someone will, I'm working with an advisor and they focus on, you know, this and this and I'm paying them, you know, 1.9%. But all that advisor is doing is managing, I'm doing air quotes, managing the portfolio, right? right? And so I think to take it one step further, that, like you said, investments is part of the plan. But what we do is focus on the overall financial plan, you know, tax planning, estate planning, income planning, and investments is part of it. But to go along with that question, begin with the end in mind and that thought, you know, just remember your goal is specific to you. What are you trying to accomplish with your investments? If you go and say, darn it, the S&P, you know, did 15% last year and I didn't get that 15%. Well, maybe your portfolio isn't tailored to grow, right? Maybe you didn't want that level of risk in your portfolio, which we'll talk about in a second. So just begin with what is it your goal? What is it you're trying to accomplish with the investment portion of your plan? So, and that's interesting because I actually had a conversation with, with the family yesterday and they said, Sean, we, we chatted with an advisor and they said everything we were doing was wrong. They, you know, we had, we had an annuity. He said to pull all the money out of it. Uh, he said that our, our portfolio couldn't, couldn't grow and wasn't going to grow because we had, you know, junk bonds in the portfolio or whatever, whatever it may be. And, and I think that, that you know, allocation is, is important that unless a plan is built and un unless there's a strategy put in place, like maybe that annuity or whatever it was, was built to provide income, right? Well, pulling all the money out of the annuity as quick as you can doesn't make any sense at that point because it blows up the income, right? So 
and then, oh, right. well, may, maybe right. my portfolio didn't grow as much. Well, what is the purpose? Is it to create income you know, through the use of dividends and, and things like that? Or do you, want, do you want growth? What is your plan need? What is your unique situation need? And far too often people you know, hear that, oh, well, this piece is bad or that piece is bad without really digging into the, the guts of a plan and understanding how each piece works. Because as an advisor on the surface, I could tell somebody, oh, well, your investments are crappy. I don't know if they are or not. And I don't know on, this, on the surface if they're good or if they're, if they're fitting the plan. So I think when we start to talk about asset allocation, understanding what your plan needs and, and goals are, are important to determining how you should be allocated. Right. right? So, I, and there's a good study. We're going to talk about this Vanguard, how America invests study a little bit and what they found. But let's, let's just, let's continue through the planning discussion, you know, as far as why planning is important and why allocation is important. And it leads us to this systematic risk versus unsystematic risk. Right. Right. So what, take some time and explain that. We'll talk about how that feeds into, into complete planning. Yeah. Uh, so the systematic risk is just, honestly, it's, it's the price you, you, you pay for being invested, right? So that's things like purchasing power, reinvestment rate risk, market risk, exchange rate risk, if you invest overseas, which I'm, I know we'll talk about in a moment with, with the study we're going to discuss. But un- systematic risk is essentially you have a very well diversified portfolio, but there are still some risks that you cannot diversify away from. And I think about it's no different than driving in a car, right? There's things you can do to mitigate the risk of you being in an accident. You wear your seatbelt, drive with your lights on, drive the speed limit, all those different variables, right? You make sure to do those things. And most folks can relate to that because we drive in a car almost every day, right? Right. Well, maybe before COVID, I don't know if folks are driving as much. But when it comes to investing, it's a little bit more foreign. So we're not sure what it is we're looking for. But unsystematic risk, Let's say you have a portfolio that's not efficient. Well, you can eliminate some of those unsystematic risks. You know, if you invested all your money into one company, that's a big risk, right? Enron is a good example. Tank, that blew up. There's an electric vehicle company that I won't say it on the air because I don't want to, you know, say anything negatively. But there was a report that came out of this electrical vehicle company and said, hey, this company's all bogus. And this was last year and their stock just tanked. So if you had all your money in that stock, you didn't do so well. So there's different kind of risk. Right? Like another good example, let's say you got this inside tip that Venezuela is the place to put all your money. So you said, I'm going to buy a bunch of Venezuelan, you know, index funds or stock or whatever. Well, their country's not doing very good. They have rampant inflation, which is just a terror. Like our chief investment officer sent us that picture of an empanada. It was wrapped in Venezuelan currency because it yep. was cheap to do that instead of going to buy paper towels and napkins. So there's those different types of risks that you can diversify away from that are unsystematic risk. And, and uh, in a lot of cases, that's not, there's your controllables and your uncontrollables. Like I, I, we couldn't control the pandemic, right? That it, it is what it is. There's the thing, the decisions that we make and, and how we allocate, we can control that. You know, unfortunately, emotions get the best of us in some cases and we get knee jerky and when it comes to, to proper allocation, and I'll, I'll take this back to the planning side, when we have a clearly defined plan and we have allocation that matches what our goals, beliefs, values, and desires are on that plan, then it, ta- it hopefully takes some of the emotion out of, of the markets. Right. 
right? Because then you have, you have clarity on how your plan's going to work. And, and you know, specifically this, this happens, this happens, this happens. This is how my plan is constructed. Okay. I can weather some of those, some of those storms. And a lot of that comes down to your risk tolerance versus risk capacity. And you know, that's a, that's a completely different discussion when you start to talk about, okay, what am I comfortable with on the surface? Right? So theoretically I'm comfortable with the 10% loss. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, what does that mean exactly? But I think what you're, what, what we want to talk about here is, you know, what is your actual capacity of your plan? What can your plan handle? Correct. Yeah. That, that whole discussion between risk tolerance and risk capacity is one we could spend, honestly, I guess we spend hours talking about this stuff, right? We love this. This is what we live and breathe for aside from our families. Right. But uh, this is stuff we love to talk about. And like you said, someone's plan can maybe afford to take on more risk, you know, calculated risk than what they're taking, but they might not be comfortable with that. I, I mean, we have short-term memory loss, unfortunately. Right. Look, no, look back no further than March last year when everyone was thinking, holy crap, I just shot myself in the foot with this. But then you fast forward to December, things weren't that bad as far as if you stayed the course, right? You have right. to stay the course. And so maybe if last year in March you were really just gut-wrenching, then maybe your plan is taking on more risk than you're comfortable with, and that's your risk tolerance, even though your, your plan looks great if you took on more risk. Right, right. So capacity is ability to control emotion and risk tolerance is what your plan maybe needs or what you, what you originally wanted in your plan. And, and asset allocation goes into a lot of different areas, right? So when you look at building a plan, we, we talk a lot about building your financial plan or your income plan first starts with that math problem, how you want to create income. You know, do we want income created from a protected environment? Do we want income created from the markets? Or do we want a combination of the two? All, that simple discussion determines where assets go and where assets are located. You, know, you couple that with your capacity and your risk tolerance, really that, that determines where do you invest your, invest your money? Where do you put your money to accomplish the goals that, that you want? So when we look at asset allocation, it's not just asset allocation, but it's location as well. Yeah, yeah, you got it spot on. And like I said, last year was a good example just because it is still somewhat recent. Let's say March was coming around and you thought, holy crap, you know, my income plan requires me to take my RMD or, you know, a thousand bucks a month, whatever it is monthly. Well, maybe you had part of your portion of your plan was, you know, in some equities and a portion was in maybe a, a fixed indexed annuity or a bond fund or whatever the case might be. Well, you don't want to sell when things are cheap, right? That's when you want to buy stuff, right. but you still need income. So maybe what you do is you pull from a fixed index annuity or you have a savings account or some bond funds that maybe haven't had that same volatility. So that's just one example of asset location. And another good example is I had a professor when I was getting my bachelor's degree who just remember one class he went on, on, on a tear on municipal bonds. And he said he's seen this in practice where someone will have a municipal bond maybe in, in a Roth IRA. But if you think about that, municipal bonds are designed to be tax-free, but it's in a, a tax-free vehicle. So not only where your asset allocation is, but where your assets are located. Because if you're having a tax-free vehicle on a tax-free bond fund in, in a Roth IRA, it, just, it doesn't make any sense. 
Well, and that goes to a, a discussion we're going to have on tax planning later on is, you know, if I've got, if I've got municipal bonds, I probably don't want to put them in a Roth because it's double tax-free, right. you know, asset. Or do I want to have individual dividend producing stocks in an after-tax account because they're more tax right. efficient? And, and that's, that's the other side of it is if, if you're creating income from, from your plan and you're doing it through maybe a protected vehicle and a, and an equity vehicle, you've got, you know, you've got a couple of them. Well, to your point, you don't want to sell when those assets are low, but as long as income continues to come in and we'll use dividends, for example, I like, I like stocks that pay dividends. You know, there's the Chevrons and the Exxons and a lot of those companies. It's almost like rental property. I don't care what the valuation of my home is, as long as my renters continue to pay me until I have to sell that rental. And those, those dividend producing holdings are much the same thing. As long as that income continues to come in, yeah, we can go through some fluctuations, some, some, some ups and downs of the, of the portfolio because the golden and the most important piece in that instance is the continual income. Right. Right. So let, let's, talk, let's talk a little bit about this, how America invests Vanguard study. And, you know, I, this came across my desk actually yesterday before we did this podcast. And I thought, you know, there's, there were a couple of, of real big talking points that I wanted to hit on. And, you know, this Vanguard's a great, you know, they're a great manager. They're a great, you know, fun area, but you know, the, the, there are a couple of things that I, that I, that jumped out at me and I want, I just want your opinion on why you think that this is the case. The first one is that generally investors take less risk with age, which I think we all agree on, you know, my risk, my ability to have my IRAs and 401ks and things like that be pretty volatile now at the age of 40 might be a little bit less than yours, more than my, my 65 year old mother. Right. Right. So do you think that that's, that's the norm? You know, investors just strategically go and become more conservative. Yeah, I mean, once again, begin with the end in mind, you know, what are your goals? And so a couple thoughts I had is, is you're spot on, right? That example we had of March last year, if you needed some income, you don't want to fold when things are down. So maybe you start off when you're younger, you know, in your accumulation phase, you're saving as much as you can, taking on as much volatility as you can. You may not need that money for 30, 40, 50 years if you're saving for retirement, right? If that's your goal for that savings. But once again, on the flip side of that is if, you know, you're invested solely in, in bonds or cash, there's the silent killer of inflation, which you're going to slowly lose money to depending on how you're allocated. So those are my thoughts on that one. That's a, that's a very interesting point you bring up. This finding actually jumped out at me. I, I, this one hit me pretty good. Is during our turbulent 2020, most affluent households stayed the course. And so here's some, here's some data behind this. And I, I just want your opinion on why I have my own opinion, which I'll talk about, but you know, for the first half of 2020, 48% of households traded, which that they said that that matches the trading scene in a typical calendar year. So they said that that was normal, but further only 1% of affluent households abandoned equities completely and less than 0.5% traded to extremely aggressive portfolios and so the net result of the portfolio and market changes was really a modest reduction in the average household equity allocation. It went from 64% in equities to 61%. Now this study, in all fairness, it was a look at personal investing behaviors of, of households of half a million dollars or more. So 
I have my own opinions on why there wasn't a big change in 2020, but I want to hear yours first and then I'll give you mine. Yeah. I, I think that goes back to the, the discussion we've been having about risk tolerance and risk capacity, right? Maybe they're comfortable with the risk they were taking. Maybe they didn't need the income because, you know, half a million plus is, is a lot of money for most folks. So maybe they thought, you know, I, I don't necessarily need the income right now, or, or maybe they just were out living their life and decided not to check, you know, what's going on in their accounts. They weren't watching the news. They just were like, I'm spending time with my family, living my dream, which is what you should be doing in retirement. So maybe that's why, I don't know. That's a very interesting point you bring up. I, I would say, you know, I, I, I would agree with you, but I would also say that most affluent households that, that we, at least we see, have clearly defined plans. So they understand the inner workings of their, of their plan. And you don't, have to have, you don't have to be an affluent household to have, you know, you don't have to have half a million dollars or more to have a clearly defined plan. You could, you could have a clearly defined plan with, with any asset level. And, and, and what I, the reason that I bring that up is that clarity and, and confidence in your plan still pushes away and, and helps alleviate some of the emotion that comes, that comes with it. Right. So, so I think, yeah, we went through this March through, through June, July-ish. A lot of recovery happened by the end of the year. But what this is telling you that a lot of people didn't panic and just move to cash. Now, there were still the scenarios, even in our practice, where we were, where we were requested strongly to move to a more conservative allocation. And, right. and we can only give our advice, right? Like my advice is don't, let's not move to a more conservative allocation because your plan is still working with incomes or whatever it may be. But, you know, our job is to keep people from themselves and the emotions. Well, let's, let's hit on this. This, this will be our last talking point from this study. And this is all about target date funds. And so when we talk about asset allocation, target date funds are, are used widely, whether it's the 401ks, IRAs, SEPs, 403Bs, 457s, they all have a, uh, not all, a lot of them have a target date option, right? And what this study found is that target date funds are not very prevalent in affluent households' portfolios. And actually fewer than one in five households use target date funds. And that's just up slightly from 2015. And, and so when we see numbers like that, yeah, target date funds are easy. They're, you know, it, it's, you get it and you forget about it and it does its thing. It, it, it reallocates as time goes on. But coming into this, you know, only one in five households using it. Now, what are your thoughts on that? I think... That, you know, that's interesting. I didn't get to that part of the study, but that's, that's actually fascinating. Uh, at first blush, right, I think it's because it's not very customizable, right? I mean, if, if your plan calls for a target date fund, then that's great. But my assumption is you maybe want your life savings to accomplish a little bit more than what the target, fund, target date fund is giving you. To your point, you know, they, they're not, I don't want to bash, they're not particularly bad investments, right? They start off more aggressive and as you get closer to retirement, they take on a little bit less equity risk. Right. So it, and that, that's not a bad idea. Like we cited earlier in the study, that's how most households are, right? They take on more risk in the accumulation phase and when they move on, it gets to be less and less risk. But also those target date funds are, I mean, to your point, you know, they, they change, they're based on, a, on an algorithm. So they just, 
take on less risk when the time says there's not much to it other than hey it's time to sell some equities and buy some bonds and maybe that's not something you're comfortable with but that's that's my thought on that no i i agree there's no customization it's great i in my opinion i i think it's greater for the younger investor the one who just hey we want to get in i want to save you know i want to be super aggressive i want it to be allocated because i don't have have a ton of money in it right now and I just want it to grow and I don't have to think about it for years. As you get older and as you, as retirement becomes more of a reality and as you get closer, it then becomes a scenario where you kind of graduate from the target date into a more customizable approach, right? Yeah. What, what does my plan need? You know, as I, as I grow more assets and as I build my wealth, I can then have a more customizable plan around me. But when you're first starting out and, you know, when you're saving, you know, target date funds, they do their job, they serve their purpose. But I think that's why we're, in a lot of cases, we're seeing that more affluent investors, once they're hitting that asset point, they're just not using that, those target dates because mm -hmm. they have, they've worked with an advisor to create some customization based around what their plan needs. Not, I'm just going to put some blinders on and throw some cash at it. Right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up, Trent. Any final thoughts on asset allocation? No, I, I, I just, I think that, I guess one final thought is something that we see time and time again is if someone will come to us, like we said, they're maybe working with an advisor or maybe they just have a 401k and they think they're fairly well diversified, but we go in and do the analysis and show them, hey, yeah, you know, your advisor has you with six different mutual funds, eight different ETFs, and you think you're well diversified, but 10 of those all hold Apple, 10 of them all hold Chevron. So you own the same stocks several times. So maybe you're not as well diversified as you thought. So that's, once again, one of the values of having comprehensive planning and making sure that you know have, you hire someone that knows what they're doing. Take time. Uh, it's not planning. Good planning is time intensive. It's, it's worth it. With that, we'll go ahead and end the podcast today. Thanks everybody for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Downloads, podcast. There's all sorts of all sorts of them, right? Trent, thanks for joining joining me again, man. I think this is a good one. I love talking about asset allocation. And until next time, I will talk to everybody soon. Thanks, Trent. See ya. Investment advisory services offered through Elevated Capital Advisors, LLC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisors.